Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When he was 22, Will Haskell ran for a seat in the Connecticut General Assembly, challenging an incumbent who was in office longer than he was alive. He would go on to win in 2018, becoming the youngest state senator in the country. He writes about his non-traditional start in politics and what he learned about legislating in his memoir, 100,000 First Bosses. His book comes out today, just two weeks after he announced he would not seek a third term. Coming up where we live, Senator Haskell joins us to talk about the decision and why he believes more Gen Zs should run for office. First, this week, the latest cut line on CPTV explores how the COVID-19 pandemic has reshaped education. Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project, worked on the latest episode. Investigative reporter Jacqueline Rabe Thomas talked to educators, parents, and Governor Ned Lamont about lessons learned and how schools are planning for the future. Jackie joins us now on Zoom. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. You hit on a lot of topics when we think about how students are struggling, there's a staffing crisis, and also questions about school safety. You also sat down with Governor Lamont uh, to talk about how the pandemic has reshaped education, and he still maintains schools could safely stay open. What data is there that backs that up, Jackie? Can you talk more about that? Sure. So the state collects several data points. Um, When it comes to school safety, the state collects how many students and teachers are testing positive for COVID. They don't, however, release data on where students and staff are contracting COVID. Um, And the data that's released is a little bit incomplete because it doesn't share just how many students or staff were tested during that time. And so um, as many of the listeners probably know during this time, you know, the infection rate that's released every day, um, a lot of people pay really close attention to that. Well, you're not really able to do that with schools because, you know, we know that 12,000 students, for example, last week tested positive for COVID, but we don't know how many people were tested. And so it, it doesn't really give us a full picture exactly what's happening in schools. When you look at research, research is really mixed and it's kind of incomplete as well because a lot of the research is based on pre, um, pre-vaccinations for, for some students, as well as the ability to track what's happening happening in schools because of um, because of different mitigation strategies. Um, last school year, for example, when a lot of research was completed uh, nationwide, there were um, a lot of people were learning remote still. So that had an option to reduce class sizes. Students weren't so close together um, and sharing space so closely. He also touched on hearing, quote, loud and clear from parents who are against this mandatory masking in schools. So did that come up with teachers and parents that you talked to for this cut line? When it comes to masks, the parents that I spoke with, they weren't really concerned about it. They said, you know, 
they're more concerned with their children being safe. And if wearing a mask provides that, then they're okay with it. Um, And also that their kids aren't really expressing concerns about having to wear a mask in school. Um, when I interviewed Governor Lamont, um, he said that he believes it's it's more of sort of an outlier population that's really concerned about masks in school. Mm-hmm. Again, you'll be able to watch the full cut line this Thursday at 8 p.m. on CPTV. But one uh, one of the takeaways from that interview, uh, thinking back to you know what we're hearing from educators and parents and, and mental health experts, Jackie, you know, that students have a lot on their plate and they are struggling. But something that the governor said to you is he believes kids are resilient. You know, what are you hearing from teachers that you spoke with, from parents? You know, does that still hold true? Yeah, I think everyone is experiencing the pandemic differently. And to just sort of have a blanket statement that kids are resilient, I don't think that, I think that sort of undermines um, the the numbers of kids who are showing up at schools in really, in drastic needs of, of extra added supports. Um, there's a, a drastic uptick in the number of kids showing up in emergency rooms as well. Uh, there's a school health survey that the State Department of Ed puts out each year to sort of gauge just how students are doing in schools. Um, Far fewer districts reported how many students are presenting with stress or have been diagnosed with anxiety, ADHD, um, some of those behavioral health um, concerns. And far fewer districts reported, but the same number of children are being reported as having um, presenting those issues. At at the same time, teachers and school nurses are reporting that they don't have the staff um, to, to accommodate students with these additional needs um, that have been brought on and and exacerbated because of the pandemic. One of the teachers that I spoke with um, said that, you know, last school year, it was really hard to connect with people, um, with their students. She wouldn't know them if she passed them on the streets because on Zoom, they were a little black box. They never turned on their screen. And, And then they showed up at school this year. Some of her students showed up at school this year and they just they, they miss key behavioral milestones um, of how to socialize with peers. They are dealing with family trauma that has been brought on by the pandemic. Um, a lot of kids have lost their, their primary caregiver. Um, there was some research in the American Academy of Pediatrics that found more than a thousand children have lost their primary caregiver here in Connecticut. Um, and so those kids are showing up at school as well. Let's hear from some of the people you interviewed for this cut line. Again, my guest, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, an investigative reporter with Connecticut Public's Accountability Project. We're talking about uh, the mental health of children in this pandemic. Uh, One of the teachers you spoke with, Tiffany Moyer-Washington, also a parent and an English teacher at Hartford Magnet Trinity College Academy. This is part of what she shared. This year, more than ever, I've had more kids who are on suicide watch or who have started doing um, self-harming with cutting or things like that more than I've ever seen before. Um, It's a lot harder. You have a lot of kids who are really worried about family members who um, are immune compromised and they're concerned about going to school and coming home. Um, And I feel like the kids have like kind of this weight on them. And generally, I feel like too, you know, when I grew up, there was no worry of like some monster that was going to come kill you, right? And there's this invisible monster that's, that's taking people away. And I think that that's a real weight that's weighing on kids. When we think about the weight on kids, uh, Jackie, some of the behaviors that they're exhibiting in the class, I think there have been some school districts where there have been um, some real problems. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what you heard from educators. 
Yeah, so one of the, another educator that I spoke with, Grin Crosby, um, she communicated that, you know, kids aren't showing up saying for school saying, I'm going to be disruptive today. Um, they're showing up that saying they want to be heard and they want to, they want to express how they're feeling. Or um, sometimes it shows up in ways that maybe they don't intend to. And so, Kids need to feel safe in schools. And for the clip that you just heard, so many kids are not feeling safe right now um, because their families have lost someone close to them or they're not feeling so sure whether school is safe or, you know, all the sort of chaos that's going on in the world around them. Um, is showing up in schools in very real numbers. Um, over 10,000 students were diagnosed with anxiety in the early days of the pandemic um, during that school health survey. And again, that's not a complete picture. So we're talking about a lot of kids who have a lot of a lot of needs that need to be addressed. And um, again, going back to that school health survey, a lot of the school nurses com communicated that 911 calls are are having to to be the solution when a kid is in crisis or um, mental health services are growing, but support is dwindling in their schools. Or another principal that I that I interviewed actually said, you know, we could hire two more social workers and it still wouldn't be enough in our schools. And so um, as many things are for schools, a lot of these needs are showing up at schools. You mentioned Gwen Crosby. She's an English teacher at Creck Academy of Computer Science and Engineering Middle School in East Hartford. This is a part of what she shared with you. And sometimes the behaviors that we see are a reaction to, I, don't, I have all this feeling and I don't know what to do with it. And sometimes a simple redirect, please take your seat, can become explosive or aggressive uh, in some of our children. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Jackie, you had mentioned uh, more 911 calls and lack of, of proper staffing, mental health staffing to help teachers and students uh, when uh, these kinds of interactions happen. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. So I looked at the data. Um, this year's school staffing data was not available and the State Department of Ed wasn't able to provide it to me in time for this story um, or for the cut lines series. Um, but if you look at last school year, there was an uptick of about 65 additional social workers in schools. But when you break that down, um, you know, there are still dozens of schools that don't have a social worker, don't have a school counselor, don't have a school nurse even. Um, and, and so there are many schools that as of last school year just were, didn't have that support system in, in place to handle, or not handle, but to help support the children. Um, and so oftentimes it's falling on, on teachers um, who have a thousand responsibilities right now um, and aren't necessarily um, having the time and space to, to accommodate the additional needs that these students may need. Well, when listeners are hearing you describe this, Jackie, you know, some might be thinking, well, the state got, you know, billions in COVID relief money? And how are municipalities and local school districts using those funds maybe to, to fill some of uh, these staffing shortages? Yeah, so it, to be determined whether how much staffing, additional staffing they put in place because of this. Again, they 
the State Department of Ed was not able to release just how many additional staffing levels in the schools. So um, all we're able to go off of is based on last year, last school year, which um, some of the money was available for last school year. Um, so it does give a little bit of an indicator. Um, I will note that the money that districts got in COVID relief money, it was it's for two and a half school years. So by the end of next school year, you know, that money runs out, it's supposed to be spent. Um, and so you're potentially leaving big gaps in people in school districts budgets um, if, if they decide to fill it with additional staffing. When I interviewed Governor Lamont, um, he said, you know, hire the people you need, hire the staff you need in your schools. Um, also make the case of what's working in our schools and, and present that to me and I'll hear that and I'll consider it as I build a budget for going forward. Another statistic that's really troubling is what you and others have reported. Connecticut seeing a record 3% decline in enrollment in both public and private schools last year. More than half of that drop was in pre-K and kindergarten uh, because uh, parents in Connecticut have the option of holding off enrollment. Uh, Also, they don't have to report when they homeschool. So can you touch on this issue of early education? What do we know this school year? So for this school year, preliminary data is showing that enrollment is down again. Um, it, I do not have a breakdown of what grades or the, the enrollment is down. If you look at last school year, however, the drop was primarily, it was about 56% was in the pre-K and kindergarten grades. Um, Connecticut doesn't require students to start attending school until they reach age seven by January 1st. And so that gives a lot of flexibility to parents of when to start their, when, when their children will start school. And so what that means for Connecticut is that a lot of parents have decided to hold off enrolling their kids, at least last school year. Um, If you look at the communities that saw the largest drop in enrollment, it was um, high poverty communities. Um, Disproportionately, um, those communities were were holding off on sending their their young ones to school. Um, I interviewed some folks in in those communities, and they said it just didn't feel right sending their kids to school where they would never be able to go in that building and see where their kids were going to be attending school, what safety precautions would be in place. Um, And so they held off for another year. Um, in Connecticut, we do not require districts or sorry, we do not require parents to unenroll their kids. So if we're talking about a first grader who their parents decided we're going to homeschool them this year, Connecticut doesn't require parents to unenroll their kids. Um, Governor Lamont last last legislative session, he actually did propose that um, we start tracking when kids um, are unenrolled from school. There was a pretty horrific case in Hartford where a kid was um, was taken out of school, was never formally unenrolled, and he ended up um, not doing so well in the outcome of that. Um, and so it really raised the awareness that maybe we should at least be knowing where these kids are going. One of the uh, other uh, parents that you spoke with for Cutline uh, was Reverend A.J. Johnson and his family. He's a parent, but also a Hartford school board member. And he talked about the reality of what remote learning or homeschooling can mean. Let's hear this clip. No one will understand what it is to, to be, you know, 11 years old, but you're the big brother and you have to look out for your siblings because your mom is an essential worker and could not find somebody to... Uh, to stay home with, right? 
And that's important to hear, Jack. You know, it's complicated, this idea that, you know, kids should just be in school. Why aren't they there? It depends on the family situation. And, you know, when you hear that, you know, it, it's still heartbreaking, you know, two and a half years on. Yeah, it really puts in perspective when you see the state release data school by school, just how many students are chronically absent. Um, it really puts perspective when you see things like, you know, students from low income families, um, 37% of the students are chronically absent. In the high schools, places like Buckley High School in Hartford, 56% of the students are chronically absent. At Hartford Public High School, 60% of the students are chronically absent. Um, and just those numbers alone don't tell the full story. It, it doesn't tell the story that AJ is telling about, hey, when a kid gets sent home in quarantine, it's the big brother that's watching um, the student. And so that that counts as an absence for, for that student. And so the, the pandemic is really having long-term consequences on children. Um, I'm really looking to see what the um, student dropout rates are when they're released soon, as well as graduation rates. I think that'll be a really good indicator of just how our high school level, high school age children are doing in the state. You've been hearing Jacqueline Rabe Thomas here on Where We Live, investigative reporter for the Accountability Project. Uh, She and her team working on the latest cut line how the pandemic is reshaping education. You can see that full episode this Thursday, January 20th at 8 p.m. on CPTV and also ctpublic.org. Jackie, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, uh, we change topics and hear from a Connecticut state senator who made headlines just a few years ago, becoming one of the youngest state senators in the country, also here in Connecticut. Now he's got other plans. We're going to talk with him and also hear about his memoir, Out Today, 100,000 First Bosses. More after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It started as a dorm room pipe dream. Will Haskell was close to graduating from Georgetown when Donald Trump was elected president. It made him consider entering politics on the local level, something he rarely thought about growing up in Westport, Connecticut. Haskell writes in his memoir, 100,000 First Bosses, he didn't even know who his state senator was. So he did a lot of research and eventually launched a campaign right after graduating college. And he 
won. His election to the Connecticut General Assembly as a 22-year-old made national headlines, but it was also remarkable because the young Democrat flipped a seat held by Republicans for 45 years. In his book, Haskell writes on what he learned about legislating and what he learned about himself. Senator Will Haskell joins us now on Zoom. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. I'm excited to be here. And the, your memoir out today, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. We'll have an expert excerpt on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. You can also join us, 888-720-9677. With Senator Haskell, your state senator, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. And so in your book, uh, you talk about how you put your plans for law school on hold when you decided you were going to start a career in politics. And uh, now you've decided to uh, step back. Uh, You're not going to run for re-election in 2023. Tell us about that decision. Sure. Uh, It was a a really hard call, to be honest, about whether or not to run for a third term. But Lucy, the truth of the matter is I ran for office not because I thought I was the only or the best person to represent these seven suburbs in Fairfield County. I ran because I thought it was time for a change. As you outlined earlier, my predecessor had served in the Capitol for 22 years, longer than I had been alive. And apart from the very substantive disagreements that we had on public policy, I thought it was bad for democracy that she was going unchallenged, that many in this district seemed to believe that the seats in the Senate belonged to the people who happened to occupy them, when in fact the seats belonged to those who decide to show up each election day. Anyways, I think the government works best when when new voices and different perspectives get to enter the caucus room or the committee hearing or the Senate floor. So while I'm sad to be stepping back, I think it's the right time in my life to go to law school. And also, I'm really excited about a new voice walking into the state Senate and bringing a different perspective on behalf of the 26th district. They're sure to have insights and ideas that are uh, probably uh, certainly very different and and by all likelihood, probably better than some that, that I would have come up with in a third term. I think the changeover is good. So I'm excited about this next chapter. There's a lot of optimism uh, that you're sharing with us, uh, Senator Haskell. But in the in the book, you're also very clear that there were some real challenges uh, to being a, a legislator a, in a part-time state legislature. We've talked about that on our show um, several times. You know, the, the financial challenges of being a young man living in Fairfield County and and doing this job. Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So to your point, I wrote this book because I want others to feel optimistic about politics, not because of anything that happened in in my tiny corner of our tiny state, but because there's a generation of young Americans who are stepping off of the sidelines and they're walking into the voting booth. And you won't just find them at the ballot. You're going to find some of them on the ballot as well. But I didn't just want to write a long stump speech. I wanted to offer a really honest look at behind the scenes of running for office and then serving in the state capitol, the good, the bad, the ugly, and hopefully maybe the funny. Um, There are very real barriers that prevent young people from voting and from running for office. For one thing, uh, our election laws here in Connecticut are woefully outdated. Without early voting, it's hard for uh, single working parents, for commuters, for seniors, and especially for young people to make their voice heard on election day. And for those who are so frustrated by the state of our politics that they want to take that leap of faith and want to get their name on the ballot, 
Well, Connecticut is great in some respects. We have public financing, which puts uh, unlikely candidates like myself on an even playing field with deeply entrenched incumbents because our fundraising is capped and we have publicly financed elections. That's a wonderful thing to create a little bit more diversity in who gets to serve in government. The problem here in Connecticut is that we don't pay elected officials nearly enough. And this is sort of unpopular to talk about because nobody wants to appear ungrateful to serve. And certainly nobody should go into politics expecting to get rich. But when you only pay state senators about $30,000, it's very hard for working class people, for parents to uh, put food on the table or send their kids to school and serve in state government. Right now, serving in the legislature is a privilege reserved for only those who can afford it. And I think that's why we don't see enough women in office. I think it's why we don't see enough people of color in office. And I know it's why we don't see a lot of young people running for office. So talk about uh, how this was fleshed out for you, even when you're running uh, to become uh, the state senator of the 26th district, you know, who your roommate was and some of the, uh, the talk about that. Absolutely. So I hope that when people pick up this book, um, they'll they'll be frustrated by politics, they'll be excited about politics, and, and I hope that they laugh sometimes too. Uh, I've read a lot of books by politicians that sort of don't say anything new and uh, perhaps aren't fully honest about the experience. So I talk about what it's actually like to hire my college roommate to be my campaign manager, uh, what it was like to share a bunk bed in the only apartment we could afford in Fairfield County. And we came back to Connecticut over spring break while the rest of our friends went and hosted parties. We hosted fundraisers in these seven suburbs. We, we opened offices and filled those offices with beanbag chairs and recruited high school interns. I talk about how sort of painful and, and rather humiliating it was to watch a focus group pick apart the size of my earlobes and just about everything else. Um, but I also talk about outworking my opponent, about knocking on 4,000 doors, earning the endorsement of President Obama, and eventually flipping a seat that, that nobody thought we could win. So this isn't a how-to guide to run for office necessarily, but it is, I, I do hope that the book prompts somebody out there, some unlikely candidate, to say, you know what, I could do this. Um, I, I should run for office. I think that I have some ideas that would make my community, my state, my country a little bit better. Again, you're hearing State Senator Will Haskell here on Where We Live. Uh, he's been the senator there for two terms of the 26th district. This is several towns in Fairfield County. He will not be running for re-election, uh, but he does have a new memoir out, out today, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker, um, Will Haskell, hoping to inspire others, especially young Americans, uh, to run for office. I'm wondering if you could read uh, a portion of, of your introduction for our listeners, Senator Haskell. Absolutely. I'd be happy to, Lucy. So this comes at the very, uh, I'll just read the final few paragraphs of the introduction. As I said a moment ago, this isn't a how to run for office guide for young people because I believe campaigns and candidates are too unique to make a book like that useful. Instead, this book continues the conversation I've had with so many other young people who want a seat at the table when public policy is written. In each room where decisions are made, millennials and Gen Z are systematically underrepresented. Every day, policymakers in town halls, state capitals, and Congress decide what the next century of American life will look like, but too often they do so without any input from stakeholders in that future. 
representative democracy remains an unfulfilled promise with white male baby boomers dominating the conversation on both sides of the aisle. Although I don't add much diversity to the state Senate, I do bring down the average age by quite a bit. And for what it's worth, young people have a unique story to tell. We're not a monolith, no generation is. However, we know that climate change isn't an academic problem, but an existential threat to our ability to lead happy and healthy lives. We know what it's like to hear a loud noise in the hallway and worry about where we would hide if the next Parkland or Sandy Hook took place in our town. We know how hard it is to afford a degree in the 21st century. I wrote this book to nudge those who are on the verge of making that leap of faith to get their name on the ballot. I want to share the highs and lows from my campaigns, but hopefully other young candidates can do more and do better. I want to let them in on the stress and the excitement of having 100,000 first bosses and explain how I learned to be an effective legislator while staying somewhat sane. When more young people take a chance and run for office, our government will spend more time planning for a cleaner, fairer, safer future and less time scoring near-term political points. In short, our representative democracy will come closer to reflecting the priorities of the people it governs. Again, that's State Senator Will Haskell reading from his memoir, 100,000 First Bosses, uh, out today. Uh, he's with us uh, here on Where We Live uh, to talk about the book and also what he learned as a lawmaker in the Connecticut General Assembly for two terms. He will not seek re-election for a third. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, in your book, you are very candid about how all-consuming this job is, and you mentioned that to us, uh, State Senator Haskell. So when young people are calling you for advice, you know, what do you tell them? Well, uh, a bunch of things, right? There are just under 2,000 state Senate districts, and I only know what it's like to represent one of them. But the biggest piece of advice that I like to pass along is that your age is not a liability. It's an asset. Um, I was so nervous about running for office at, at the age of 22. When I knocked on doors, the very first question I got was, how old are you? I, I looked about 12 years old. And, um, you know, I tried to change the topic. Usually I said, oh, I'm 22, but here's my plan to address our pension crisis. Here's my plan to speed up the Metro North trains here in Fairfield County. But I don't know, that didn't, that didn't satisfy people's concern about electing somebody who was younger than their kids or even their grandkid. And instead, I started to talk about the fact that, um, being a young person gives me a different perspective. I don't know what it's like to take out a mortgage or to um, assist with uh, elderly parents who are declining in health. So when constituents brought those issues to the table, I spent more time listening than I did talking. But I do know what it's like to uh, try to afford a degree in the 21st century. I do know what consent looks like on college campuses and what it doesn't look like. And I have some really, um, you know, uh, strong ideas about how we can build a state that's more attractive to the next generation of workers, to the next generation of taxpayers. So when I started to talk about my age as something that I was proud of as a reason for running, I realized that um, this was this was a asset and not a liability, and not just because it helped recruit teenagers to come and work on our campaigns, but also because it helped to recruit an older generation of volunteers, folks who were in my grandparents' generation, who said that they were so excited to fulfill President Kennedy's long overdue promise about passing the torch to the next generation. 
you know, uh, you were elected, so you convinced the voters in your district that uh, despite uh, being 22, that you could do this job, and then you were reelected. But I'm wondering if you can get into, you know, having those feelings of, you know, from your your legislative colleagues from leadership when you showed up at the state capitol and they saw this 22-year-old with a lot of, of, of ideas, but, you know, how they, some of them might have doubted you, Senator Haskell. Yeah, there was, there was plenty of, of doubt when I walked in the, into the Capitol building. And for some, there probably still is. One thing that I hope people take away from this book is that while Washington is talking about problems, state legislatures are actually solving them. So an adjustment that I had to make as somebody who paid attention to politics on Twitter was that apart from Washington, D.C., actually Republicans and Democrats um, work together quite a bit. About 80 percent of the bills that we pass in the state legislature are bipartisan. And a lot of the folks with whom I had fought on the campaign trail actually ended up becoming really key allies in passing legislation. And then there were plenty of folks who just didn't love the idea of legislating with somebody who was so new to the building and new to politics. And I wore that on my sleeve. I talk openly about the fact that, you know, as you said earlier, I ran for office shortly after finding out who my state senator was. I think that a lot of people at the Capitol operate as though folks are watching CTN, the state version of C-SPAN, with bated breath, wondering how the vote on each amendment or wondering how long the filibuster will last. But the fact of the matter is that most people lead really busy lives and they don't have attention. They don't have time to pay attention to politics in general, let alone state politics. So our job as elected officials is to reach those who are apolitical, to go out door knocking both when we're up for reelection, but also in the off years to try to stay engaged with our constituents. I'll just tell one one quick story about um, bonding with those who have been in the Capitol for much longer than I have. One of my very good friends these days is State Senator Marty Looney, somebody who was elected in the 1980s. He's on the polar opposite in terms of um, he's served at the Capitol for a long time, and he represents a district that's very different than I am. But we've developed a real rapport, both in terms of working together on issues like special education funding, which is which impacts his district and mine alike, and also just in terms of um, building a friendship. He remarked on the first day of the session that he was wearing a tie older than I was. And a few weeks later, I brought him a tie that was older than he was. And this became a bit of a theme, actually. Some of my colleagues still come up to me and tell me that they're wearing shoes older than I am, or, you know, rather disgustingly, they're wearing underwear older than I am. So um, anyways, Marty's become a good friend. And I think that part of being a legislator is building connections with those on the other side of the aisle, those on the other side of the age spectrum, figuring out where you can work together and delivering for the people that send you to Hartford. That's interesting that you've developed a good relationship with uh, State Senator Martin Looney. Uh, when we think about, you know, the urgency, what made you want to run for office and what we hear from you know, other people uh, considered in the Gen Z generation where they see climate change as an existential threat. But when they look at how older Americans, older Americans in power and how they view the problems like climate change, you know, the inaction of uh, TCI, uh, the Transportation Climate Climate initiative, a lot of frustration in the environmental community about that. And so I'm wondering if you can and talk through, you know, having relationships with legislators who may not be in the same place as you when it comes to action on, uh, you know, something as controversial as TCI became. Well, it, there have been some very frustrating moments in the legislature. As proud as I am to have passed something like debt-free community college, which has helped thousands of young people go to go to college and get their degree. 
I'm, uh, I'm frustrated about the fact that we haven't been able to get tolls, a sustainable funding mechanism for transportation across the finish line, how we weren't able to pass TCI, which would cap carbon emissions and ensure that there's clean air and clean water for the next generation. Um, look, on a lot of those issues, some of my colleagues on the uh, other side of the aisle seem to be burying their head in the sand. But for the Democratic Party, there's a real opportunity here. Young people showed up in a historic way in the 2018 midterms. And then that turnout got even larger in 2020, showing that young people um, as an electorate are, there's, there's a new norm of young people being a part of this democratic coalition. And we've got to figure out how to harness that. Um, luckily for the Democrats, we are still growing, um, quite literally in some cases. But uh, Democrat, Democrats can't idly count on young people to show up to vote unless they deliver on some policy priorities that really matter for uh, our generation. And that means uh, both passing cli aggressive climate change legislation, enacting stronger gun laws that will save lives and make sure students feel safe at home. But I also think, Lucy, that it means elevating more young candidates. Uh, young people want to recognize themselves in the folks on the ballot. And it's going to be a challenge for a party that's uh, nationally led by septuagenarians and their more senior colleagues to find a way to um, inspire the next generation to get to the polls. So we as a party need to spend a little bit more time and money investing in young candidates. And I think every elected official of every party and every um, and, and anywhere on the age spectrum has to spend more time talking to young, young people and less time talking about them. You mentioned um, on the on issues of climate change and the party uh, on the other side of the aisle uh, burying their heads in the sand when we think about uh, this very important issue. But what about fellow Democrats? Uh, you were very clear in your memoir. You asked the question, how many good ideas die because of legislative gamemanship? The fact that the clock runs out on particular issues, the fact that you know all the seats are up for re-election this year, and thinking about how constituents will view your vote and how that all plays into whether you can make a a good decision that pleases everyone. That's impossible, right? It's completely impossible. You're always going to have to let your friends down. And in a democratic trifecta like the state of Connecticut, a lot of the fighting hap happens within the party. The Democrats disagreeing with each other. We're a big, big tent party, and that's inevitably a part of the process. But what I would say to anyone listening who cares about climate change or college affordability or gun control or, or whatever issue it is that motivates you and makes you concerned about the state of our politics, be in touch with your state legislator. I've now seen firsthand what just a handful of calls can do in terms of getting a bill through the Senate, through the House, and onto the governor's desk. Um, one of the chapters in this book is called Stop Calling Mitch McConnell and Start Calling Your State Legislator. Because if even a fraction of the advocacy that we all direct towards Washington, D.C., were instead uh, aimed at our state capital, I think we would start to see uh, more aggressive climate change legislation, a greater um, investments in college affordability, stronger gun control measures, all of these things that we sometimes struggle to get across the finish line. The public can and should play a really key role in uh, in passing the bill, in helping us to pass the bills that matter to them. You're hearing Will Haskell here on Where We Live, Democratic State Senator, also um, an author of a memoir out today, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. We're going to talk more with him after the break. And you can join us, too, if you're on the line. We'll take your call right after a short break, 888-720-9677. Thank you. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How do you get more Americans interested in running for office? State Senator Will Haskell wants people to know that you don't need to be an expert before becoming a candidate. In his memoir, 100,000 First Bosses, Haskell writes about what he learned legislating and why politics needs more ordinary people, also more Gen Zs, young Americans who were born between 1997 and 2012. Haskell's one of them. He's 25, and he served two terms in the Connecticut General Assembly. I wanted to take a quick call. Tim is calling in. Tim, what's your question or comment for Senator Haskell? Well, good morning. I've uh, been running uh, candidates uh, since uh, since high school. I was 18, and we had people running for city councils in my old hometown. It's very, very difficult right now for any type of independent or third-party candidate to make the same exact uh, status as uh, the Democrats and Republicans. So you essentially have kind of a, a rigged system. If I was helping a candidate for, a, like a Green, to be running for uh, governor, uh, I would have to go out and collect 100,000 signatures and still make uh, raise the exact same amount as the Democrats and Republicans. Same thing, you know, you have to raise collect more signatures for state rep and state senate uh, if you're an independent or third-party green or libertarian candidate. So the system is essentially rigged against a lot of people who would say, I would like to get involved involved in politics, but I don't want to become a Democrat or Republican. I don't want to be uh, an environmentalist and say, yeah, we need to put tolls on the roads like the state senator there. They're like, hey, I'm working class. I can't afford more tolls on the road. So how can I run as an independent or third party uh, person uh, if the if the systems rigged, rigged against me? Thank you, Tim, for calling in, Senator Haskell. You know, how do you how do you respond to that? Tim mentioned the system being rigged a couple of times, and so uh, when people hear that and they think about politics again, you know, all the challenges uh, to becoming a candidate, how would you respond? Yeah, well, thank you, Tim, for your comments, uh, and thanks for the question, Lucy. There probably do need to be some changes here in Connecticut to make our uh, government and to make elected office more accessible for third-party candidates. In the interim, I would say that uh, both the Democratic and the Republican Party, uh, at least here in Connecticut, are pretty big tent organizations. And what I mean when I say that is I've got colleagues in the Democratic Party who believe, just take the issue that Tim mentioned, tolls, who believe wholeheartedly, like I do, that we are giving up revenue from out-of-state drivers and trucking companies when every other state on the East Coast is raising significant uh, dollars to invest in their transportation system. And then there are Democrats who have spent a career fighting against tolls. On the Republican side of the aisle, there are those who wrap both arms around Donald Trump, and there are those who eschew the former president and everything that he stands for. So I hope that both parties um, can be welcoming into the sort of candidates that Tim is talking about. And if folks do decide to run as a third party, there has been a history of successful third party candidates in Connecticut. But if there are legislative reforms that need to be made, I hope Tim will make his voice heard by contacting either myself or the whoever represents him in the state legislature. And perhaps we can consider some of those issues during the upcoming session. Uh, your district is changing because of redistricting. Again, you're not running for reelection for a third term. But talk about how the 26th district uh, will be changing. And what do you hope to see in your successor? Obviously, you have, you know, you've, you've mentioned, you know, ordinary, pe- ordinary people need to run. We need more young people. We need more uh, diverse uh, people in the state capitol. Absolutely. So uh, 
two two parts to that question. I'll start with the, the redistricting. I'm I'm excited about the new 26th district. Uh, population has exploded here in Fairfield County, and that's especially true in Stamford, the fastest growing city in the state. So it only makes sense that an additional state senator has to represent some of the folks who um, some of that population growth in Stamford. Uh, at, at the expense of gaining a portion of Stamford and Darien, the 26th district loses Bethel. This gives the district a little bit more of an east-west orientation. And um, I personally spend a lot of my time in the legislature thinking and talking about transportation. I spend a lot of that time thinking and talking about our rail lines, which carry people to and from Manhattan. It's the busiest commuter rail in the country, and yet it's gotten slower over the last 50 years, not faster. Um, much of the commuting that happens in this part of the, the state happens on an east-west basis. So I think that it's going to be exciting for the next state senator from the 26th district to represent uh, those new communities. And being able to speak on behalf of both um, rather rural communities like Redding, Connecticut, and also urban communities like Stanford is going to ensure that, uh, you know, there's a real sort of diversity of thought and, op and opinions at town hall meetings and that that state senator comes in with a, a holistic perspective. Um, Lucy, the, the other part of your question in terms of what I hope to see in a successor, it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody who's young or need to have a certain experience. I want I want somebody who is uh, going to work really hard to um, keep this district blue. It was hard to flip, as you mentioned. This had been a seat that was held by Republicans since, 19, uh, since the 1970s. And I'm really proud of the work that uh, that our campaign team did in terms of knocking on doors and making phone calls and sending personalized letters. And I want to make sure that that same dedication is still there. I also want to make sure that it's somebody who um, who embraces what you alluded to earlier, Lucy, which is that we need ordinary people, tons of them, to solve the really extraordinary problems that we're facing. I think that there are too many people in Connecticut who loathe politicians, and I also think that there are too many who deify them. And both of those extremes fail to really capture the reality. I think that at the state legislature and, and our political discourse in general would be a lot more functional if we had a realistic expectation of who is actually serving in government. Um, I, I hope anyways that this book makes a lot of people realize that more smart and competent people should run for office and they don't necessarily need to be otherworldly brilliant to what I've learned over the course of my two terms is that hard work pays off more than anything else in this job. Earlier, you talked about some of the animosity uh, when you were running, but also from some of the even the emails or the social media comments uh, uh, to you uh, from people. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, how that may have played into uh, part of why you're leaving, you know, this job at this point. Yeah, I'm not sure I was prepared for the amount of negativity that gets thrown our way. Uh, and this is true of, of everybody in, in public service. I thought that it was mainly those who represented us in Washington. But I remember when we voted uh, on a bill concerning uh, the religious exemption for vaccines, making sure that students in our schools are vaccinated against polio and mumps and measles and rubella. Oh, my gosh. Um the negativity both in my district but also outside of the capital people with um with amps and and microphones shouting my name and all sorts of obscenities that could be heard in the senate chamber those were moments that will stay with me forever and although i'm tremendously sad about stepping back and and uh, leaving politics at least temporarily 
that isn't necessarily something that I will miss. Um, I think elected officials are supposed to say that they don't read the Facebook comments and they don't pay any attention to their Twitter mentions. Um, maybe that's true for some people. It's not true for me. It does take a toll. It is the last thing I look at when I go to bed and usually the first thing I look at when I wake up. Um, I try to address that criticism head on. When I'm looking at my email inbox and I've got 100 emails to respond to, I start with the folks who disagree with me the most because they can call me, uh, you know, communist, all sorts of terrible things, but uh, at least they can't say that I'm unresponsive. But yeah, it, it is a challenge and it's probably a deterrent for some folks in terms of uh, when they're making a decision about whether or not they want to step up and serve their community. Well, for those who read your memoir and a lot of optimism and the fact that you know you were able to really enact change on the local level, and that's why it's important to get into to local uh, politics uh, for those who are on the fence. Uh, you can read, uh, again, Senator, State Senator Will Haskell's book, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker, for some takeaways. And so it's fair to say that um, there will be another chapter in American politics for you? I'd love to come back to politics. You know, I'm stepping away, uh, not from public service. I, I hope to go to law school and use my law degree to help others. And down the road, if I can find my way back into politics, um, I'd be thrilled. But in the meantime, I'm looking forward to living a little bit closer to the person that I love and spending a little less time reading uh, the Facebook comments on my page and, uh, you know, uh, calling up my future state senator and making my voice heard. Will Haskell, again, is Democratic State Senator of the 26th District in Fairfield County. You can read a part of his memoir, 100,000 First Bosses, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Senator Haskell, a pleasure to hear from you. I enjoyed your book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. 